legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, formerly known as Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths. Every Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing founding father John Adams. John Adams is most often remembered as the second president of the United States. But in that glorious row of faces above the elementary school chalkboard, He's smack in between the great and tall George Washington and the great and tall Thomas Jefferson. Who could sit between them and expect to look as noble, as wise, or as legendary as either of those two? Trust me, Adams felt every bit of that too. He was one of the most introspective, self-critical, esteem-challenged men to ever serve in the office. But look a little closer dig a little deeper, and you'll find out that not only was he as great as they were, in some ways, he was even greater. And most surprisingly of all, George and Thomas would tell you the same thing. They might go on and on about the guy's resume. He was a Harvard grad, a highly successful Boston lawyer, a state legislator, a member of the Continental Congress, one of the formative thinkers of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution an ambassador to foreign governments, the first vice president, and finally president of the United States. But John Adams was also a man of deep and constant self-analysis, whose never-ending stream of correspondence and diaries are like the lifelong unspooling of one man's psyche, laid bare for all of history to see. John Adams was born in 1735 in the town of Braintree, later called Quincy, in the British province of Massachusetts, one of the original 13 colonies. Massachusetts was established in 1630, and for the first 120 years or so, everything was fairly copacetic. The colony was rich in exportable materials, and England was more than happy to foot the bill for much of the infrastructure and allow passage of foreign ships in and out of their busy ports. 
Most importantly, Massachusetts citizens, though British subjects, were still free to do what they wanted to build a better life for themselves with little to no direct interference from the crown. With that in the background, John's boyhood in Braintree in the middle of the 18th century couldn't have been more idyllic. The town consisted of about 2,000 people, spread out over a huge expanse of rolling green hills, orchards, and meadows. And it was all just out of reach enough from the bustling towns of Boston and Plymouth to feel like you could always be alone with your thoughts. John loved to explore, playing sporting games with his friends, hunt and fish, very often while school was in session. Just the boy's way of declaring his independence. Shades of things to come. But I doubt his parents ever signed off on that document. (laughs) Speaking of his parents, his father was also named John. He was the latest in a long line of Massachusetts farmers, dating back to Adam's great-great-grandfather, who sailed the Atlantic to settle in New England. John Sr., his wife Susanna, and their three sons, John, Peter, and Elihu, all survived on a farmer's earnings. They weren't rich, but they were comfortable. John loved his mother Susanna, but he absolutely idolized his father. The elder John was devoted to his farm, but was also, among other things, a deacon at the church, a tax collector, a constable, a shoemaker, and a lieutenant in the militia. (laughs) To his son, he was a rock star, the strongest, smartest, and most honorable man he'd ever known. Adams would say of his father, In wisdom, piety, benevolence, and charity, I have never known his superior. And he said that at the end of his life, after hanging out with no less than the founding fathers, he took that sentiment all the way to the grave. Perhaps owing to this idol worship, John inherited his father's love for the land and physical labor. But young John, as it turns out, was neglecting another side of himself. His parents both recognized the boy's incredible smarts early on and thought he'd be better served to dream a little bigger than the family farm. Once, when John was a boy, his father tried to suggest such. He asked him what he wanted to do in life, and the boy said, I want to be a farmer. Wise and undaunted, his dad pulled a Huxtable and took him out at dawn into the fields, where they spent the next 12 hours doing some of the hardest farm work imaginable, cutting thatch. On their way home, Dad asked his son what he thought of farming now. And John said with a smile, I like it very well, sir. (laughs) The plan had clearly backfired, but his father bested him anyway by sending him right back to school the next day. Truly, his gift was not in his hands. It was in his head. He may have loved to farm, but most accounts show he spent most of his time reading. He had a natural love for learning. Later in life, he would say of education, I must study politics and war, that my sons might have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture, in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture. Meaning the rise of culture comes from understanding, at the very beginning of the process, the art of government. And that comes from learning, something that seemed to come so naturally to John that it must have seemed silly to think of it vocationally. At about a first grader's age, John attended what was called a dame school. That was a local school taught by a female teacher. There he would be taught the basic skills of reading and writing. 
Only a few years later, he was sent to a Latin school. That was a preparatory school for those who planned to attend college. Clearly, Papa John had plans for his gifted kid. Namely, he wanted him to be a minister. Ministers were some of the most respected members of the community, mostly because they encouraged education and philosophy. And John made his dad proud. It wasn't long before he learned to read his favorite Greek and Roman thinkers in their original languages. His thirst for books was seemingly inborn. If you could get a hold of the first book he ever owned for himself at age 14, you'd see what I mean. The book was a collection of Cicero's orations. John wrote his name in the inside cover six times. Six times. To claim his property, to make himself a part of it, just to practice his signature. Hmm. He would definitely need that last one someday, but probably it was all of these. In whole, an expression of his sheer love for knowledge. Based on all this, his father arranged for him to get an interview at the increasingly prestigious Harvard University. At the tender age of 15, John prepped himself for the journey. He would take the long ride with his mentor, Joseph Marsh, who taught him specialized courses at yet another school near Braintree. You know, the name of his hometown is starting to sound prophetic. Mm -hmm. At Harvard, he would stand alongside his proud teacher before a gathering of intimidating university magistrates. There, he'd feel some queries, and then the bigwigs would say yay or nay. This would be John's first true test. But as fate would have it, his teacher fell ill and couldn't go with him. And despite all his smarts, John was never exactly filled with confidence. So he panicked. But Marsh had all the confidence the young man lacked. He assured him he was ready and sent him on his way. So there was teenage John Adams with the rough hands of a farmer's son and a history of skipping school to hunt and fish, stepping before what must have seemed like Peter at the pearly gates. He didn't have a thing to worry about. Just like the image we get of the older John Adams, passionately defending the rights of man before the Continental Congress, he spoke from his brain and his heart. And of course, he was accepted. So proud of his son, the elder John Adams broke his own cardinal rule and sold a piece of his land to help pay for John's college. I imagine the transition into college life was as rocky for John as it is for anyone these days. New schedule, new courses, new friends. But once he settled in, he started to get his sea legs. He joined a debating and discussion club and found he had a real penchant for public speaking. Maybe it was all that reading, but the words just came to him. Several friends and teachers told him he'd make a good lawyer, and something about that clicked. He loved his father, and his father wanted him to be in the clergy, but he never truly felt that was his calling. But the law, this idea had a nice ring to it. He embraced it immediately and began poring over every law book he could find. Meanwhile, he was batting zero in the romance department. Hopelessly awkward around girls, at any sign of approval, he was susceptible to self-imposed humiliation. Good treatment makes me think I am admired and beloved. So I dismiss my guard and grow weak, silly, vain, conceited, ostentatious. Been there, pal. Eventually, all of these sorts of self-criticism filled up his now ever-present journal. He'd become an astute chronicler of his own neuroses. He described his dark doubts about his own abilities and was somewhat dismissive of his capacity to learn. 
Yet he also wrote of an uncompromising confidence that he would somehow become a great man. A bit of a paradox. I'd say. He was someone most people found easy to like, but he very often didn't like himself. He was especially harsh on himself for the huge gap he saw between his lofty personal goals and the huge amount of time he wasted daydreaming. But he knew there was no time for dreaming. Reality was looming. Now that he'd determined to be a lawyer, he had to commit to raise money. It was the custom in those days to learn under the tutelage of an established lawyer. But it was treated like it was another class that you had to pay for. Basically a paid internship where the boss is the one that's paid? Crazy, but yes. He found a lawyer in the nearby town of Worcester, a man named James Putnam. For $100, Putnam would house Adams and allow him to sit in on cases and freely peruse his massive collection of law books. It was everything John could ask for. The only downside was that in order to pay this fee, John had to earn money as a teacher at a grade school there in Worcester. This was a great transitional time for Adams. Maybe a couple of years in a no man's land between finishing school and going into his own law practice. He definitely had the ups and downs many of us experience just starting out in post-college life. Case in point, he was able to pay his way into Putnam's law firm. But once he finally struck out on his own, back in Braintree, he would suffer through the next three years without winning a single case. But that long string of defeats only focused his burning desire for success all the more. And he was determined to know the law down to the last detail. It paid off. In due time, his practice in Braintree began to flourish. Word got out that young John Adams was back, and he was the best orator in town. Adams was now in his mid to late 20s, and he became known for his easy and often moving eloquence. And soon, clients were lining up. At last, with some marks in the wind column, Adams seemed ready to translate that confidence from court to courting. Soon, he would begin what many historians call one of the greatest love stories in all of American history, when John met Abigail. Backtracking for a second, when they first met in 1759, Abigail was only 15, while John was 23. They met while he accompanied his friend Richard Cranch on his visits to see Abigail's sister, Mary. Of course, there was no courtship between John and Abigail yet. That would be a few years later, but they already had a lot in common. Abigail had a similar love for books. Her father was a minister, and she would hang out in the church library. Also, when Cranch would come courting Mary, he'd bring books to keep Abigail busy so he and Mary could talk. Over time, Abigail grew to love reading and became self-educated, very much in defiance of the customs of the day. As we'll see... Abigail was no shrinking violet when it came to the time she lived in. And those times were rarely easy. In 1761, a major influenza epidemic spread across eastern Massachusetts. John's family was not spared its share of sorrow. Sadly, the elder John, beloved husband and father, succumbed to the illness that year. Apart from the great sadness of the event, his father's death was a major turning point for Adams. Gaining an inheritance made him wealthy by Braintree standards, and he was bequeathed a portion of his childhood home and some of the land. This meant he was now eligible to vote and participate in local government. It also gave Adams more standing in his pursuit of Abigail. 
They began to formally court a year later, when she was 18, and as nature would have it, the two colonial lovebirds got married in 1764. John's life changed for the better with Abigail's presence, not only because her own literacy and smarts made her helpful in editing his speeches, legal documents, and letters, but simply she was a constant conversational companion to John. Both of them were politically minded, opinionated, and full of a certain humble doubt about their own intellectual capacity, yet driven to make their opinions known. While he was away, off and on, for much of their marriage, the correspondence they began and kept up constantly for most of their lives. 1,100 letters between 1762 and 1801. All grew into one of the richest primary sources for research into the issues and debates of the time. And also, it's one of the greatest extant pictures of a strong love between man and wife during that period. Their letters were tantamount to writing their autobiographies in real time. Indeed, their great friendship was grand timing for John. Soon enough, they would both need all the moral support they could get, as John became even more beholden to major governmental commitment. He realized he couldn't just stand by while Britain's grip on the daily lives of the colonies pushed them closer and closer to the brink of war. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. And now let's continue the story. When we talk about what started the Revolutionary War, we more often than not refer to the Stamp Act, or the Boston Massacre, or the Battle of Lexington and Concord. But it's better to look slightly further back on the timeline to 1756 and the so-called French and Indian War. Mm, you mean that war nobody seems to remember a thing about? <laughs> That's the one. It begs the question... Well, why were the French and the Indians fighting? Right. It's a bit of a misnomer. It was also called the Seven Years' War, and it was a war between England and France over a spot on the map that's now basically Ohio. The English had control of the colonies on the East Coast and wanted to expand westward. And the French, who had the deed to Canada, were determined to push south. Military forces from both directions clashed in the Ohio River Valley and wrangled the help of local Native American tribes to help in the battles. Well, to make a seven-year-long story short, the English won in 1763, but it cost them a pretty penny. A penny they intended to get back. You guessed it, by taxing the colonies. Mm -hmm. This was well within their right to do as the owners of the land. Think 
Landlord raises your apartment rent because of too many repairs to the hot water heater. Mm, but what they hadn't counted on was a group of colonists who'd grown up way too far away from the guys in charge to really want to listen to them anymore. Well, let's say your landlord upped your rent, but he's tanning in the Riviera. But even worse for the English was that the colonists had a rekindled fighting spirit, thanks to the over half decade of war waged in their own backyard. Then, in 1765, came the first egregious act by England, the far-sweeping Stamp Act, which forced colonists to pay as much as a 10-pound fee with every single use of most paper products. We're talking pamphlets, newspapers, deeds, diplomas, legal documents, ship's papers, pretty much everything but private correspondence. It affected virtually every walk of life. And with no family untouched, the anger was quick and widespread. There was rioting in the streets, like devils let loose, said the Boston Gazette, while the men responsible for the distribution of the stamps were physically threatened and their places of business stoned. Well, Adams wasn't blind. He saw the egregious disregard for liberty at the heart of Britain's move, but he was a family man now. The first of his daughters, Abigail, was just a one-year-old, and his first son, John Quincy, was on the way. Yes, both of the first two Adams kids were named after their parents, just like John had been named after his father. Needless to say, with his growing family, John was reluctant to get involved. But he'd already been working on an essay called A Dissertation on the Canon and the Feudal Law, essentially a statement of his own patriotism, and his idea that freedom was not something to be obtained, but was inherent in the very fabric of human life. Mm, sounds familiar. The great Boston lawyer, Jeremiah Gridley, suggested John submit it to the newspaper for publication. So John did just that, but anonymously. Let's just say the essay went viral. He followed it up with a document called The Braintree Instructions. But this time, he put his name on it. Mm -hmm. This was a set of principles, what he called instructions, sent to the Massachusetts legislature on behalf of Braintree, declaring what the people of the town expected of it. It included grievances that sprang directly out of the Stamp Act debacle. We have always understood it to be a grand and fundamental principle of the English Constitution that no free man should be subject to any tax to which he has not given his own consent. In the document, he coined the phrase that summed up the argument with Madison Avenue brevity. Quote, no taxation without representation. Though intended for Braintree only, it was published in the Gazette and it caught fire too. Forty towns eventually adopted the document as their own sentiments. Practically overnight, Adams became a leading spokesman for the revolution of the people against an increasingly overbearing British rule. The year 1765 has been the most remarkable year of my life. The enormous engine fabricated by the British Parliament for battering down all the rights and liberties of America, I mean the Stamp Act, has raised and spread through the whole continent a spirit that will be recorded to our honor with all future generations. The next full decade of Adam's life is a flurry of activity in his home life and in his newfound life as a popular revolutionary thinker. At home, he and Abigail eventually had six children, though one, Elizabeth, was stillborn, and another, Susanna, died at 13 months. His law firm was growing, too. 
1766, he traveled throughout New England, seeing every side of life, defending and prosecuting all manner of men and deeds. Also around this time, two of the biggest lawyers in Boston were no longer around. Jeremiah Gridley died, while Gridley's law partner, James Otis, whose fiery eloquence John had tried to mimic in his own practice, slowly slipped into an unexplained madness. With those two no longer presenting competition, John became the busiest lawyer in town. Meanwhile, England continued sending thousands of troops to the colonies, ostensibly to ensure their safety. Ostensibly. Mm. It wasn't about safety. It was a show of power and a way to ensure that the steady stream of taxations were monitored and enforced. Mm -hmm. Those nefarious taxes created tension among the colonists, and it was only a matter of time before that tension spilled over into action. And that's exactly what happened in 1770, the year of the Boston Massacre, which is the somewhat hyperbolized name given to the death of five men by British gunfire in the streets of Boston. Citizens had gathered at the Customs House. When soldiers arrived to lend backup to the single British sentry there, confusion began to take hold. Tensions boiled to the surface. Some of the men and boys among the crowd began to pelt the soldiers with found items. In the melee, the soldiers opened fire and five citizens lay dead. Predictably, when the trial went to court, no lawyer in town would dare defend the British soldiers. That is, No lawyer, but John Adams. He defied his own feelings of anger and resentment and saw the men as he would any American in court, needful of an advocate. After all, how could he stand by and let the rule of law extend to some men and not others? No man in a free country should be denied the right to counsel and a fair trial. He did this knowing full well he would likely suffer loss of clients at his practice. Not to mention the potential violence upon his family. Mm, But this was John Adams putting his money where his mouth was. All those essays he'd written about liberty and freedom would be worth nothing if he couldn't stand by them with his actions. Adams reasoned in bold, eloquent style, honed by years on the circuit, that the soldiers should absolutely not be in the colonies, that England is at fault for sending them in the first place, for their presence increases tensions among the people that can always foment into a mob. But all of that being true, and this is the crux of his argument, the mob itself is guilty for its own actions. Essentially, both sides were at fault. His point stood the legal test. Of eight soldiers, six were found not guilty, while two were guilty of manslaughter but allowed to live and branded on their thumbs, a typical method of lifelong public shaming. Adams said later in life it was the most exhausting but most rewarding action of his entire life. One of the most gallant, generous, and disinterested actions of my whole life, and one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. With the twin events near Adams' hometown, the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party, Adams was now surrounded by the new negative feelings toward British rule. Starting in 1774 and again in 1775, he was part of a think tank of sorts, a group of respected statesmen in the English colonies who gathered in Philadelphia. These two long-term meetings, called the First and Second Continental Congress, 
were hotbeds of discourse by some of the leading men of the colonies, the greatest thinkers and orators of the New World. They were there to wrap their minds around the British problem. Could the colonies successfully escape the powerful grip of British rule and become their own independent nation? In the blistering hot summer air, these men joined together in a shared sense of divine cause. While they may not have agreed on the methods, they all agreed that America should be separated from the British crown. One of the luminaries Adams would rub shoulders with was future President Thomas Jefferson. Adams and Jefferson are one of those fascinating pairs that historians love to analyze. Two great men so intertwined by what made them different and who led such close-knit, parallel lives throughout this period that it's almost impossible to talk about one without the other. Just on the surface, Adams was short. Jefferson was tall. Adams was balding. Jefferson had a full head of hair. Adams would take any chance he could get to flex that oratory flamboyance of his, while Jefferson rarely said more than two sentences at a time. But time would eventually reveal a vast chasm between their two political beliefs. Adams had great faith that any new nation would be strongest as a single unified government, while Jefferson was deeply distrustful of large institutions, including government. More profoundly, Jefferson, being a plantation owner in Virginia, was beholden to the use of slaves, while Adams, who was from the only colony to have abolished slavery to that point, was in fact the only founding father to never own a slave. Adams had a deep interest in the human nature of individual people that he met, while Jefferson, who believed mankind as a whole could be improved, seemed to never have much interest in individuals. Other than his family, of course, who Jefferson loved dearly. Exactly. That's where we start to see how the men were similar in much deeper ways. Both were farmers, whose most sincere love was devoted to their families and to farming. They both loved the land. And books. They were both devoted to learning and had a respect for words and their application. Consequently, they were two of the most educated men in Philadelphia that summer. If a novelist were to make up a story about the founding of a free nation, he would need to invent two characters exactly like Adams and Jefferson to portray the two voices of America, the loud, opinionated overachiever and the quiet, steadfast tinkerer. If Adams learned anything from Jefferson, it was that you could affect radical change from the back of the sanctuary as easily as the pulpit. But these guys weren't alone. Also in attendance were George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, John Hancock, Patrick Henry, future presidents James Madison and James Monroe, many others. Pretty much a who's who from your high school social studies book. <laughs> But you can imagine the state of Adam's mind as he approached this new, overtly political role. Or wonder how he must have felt sidling up to these men who were as devoted to the principles he'd been stumping for years. He nearly broke under the strain of self-doubt, unsure whether he, or anyone around him, had the skill or courage necessary to take on the British government. I wander alone and ponder. I muse. I mope. I ruminate. We have not men fit for the times. We are deficient in genius, education, in travel, fortune, in everything. I feel unutterable anxiety. Anxiety wasn't the half of it. He knew the very act of meeting was treasonous. 
that it was tantamount to calling to arms the American militias that were even then gathering in strength and resolve and breaking free from the ruling government. Adams took to the floor and declared that anyone who didn't expect the end result of these meetings to be the spilled blood of their countrymen was woefully naive. And he was right, of course. Just days before the second Congress was set to meet, the first shots of the Revolutionary War rang out in Lexington and Concord. It was 1775, a decade after the egregious Stamp Act, and the colonies were finally breaking away. There would be bloody fighting, the deaths of loved ones, families torn apart, war and misery for years. During all of that time, Abigail was at home with her brood, basically listening to the war 10 miles away from Boston, while John was dutifully bound to help prosecute the war effort. She never forgot her love for him, but she also kept a tight grip on her own passions for liberty, expressing in her most famous letters to him a determination that matched his own. Quote, I long to hear that you have declared an independency, And, by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. Maybe she should have gone to Philadelphia and John could have stayed home. (laughs) You're right. In June 1776, Congress appointed Adams, along with Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, to prepare what would become the Declaration of Independence. They all discussed the ideas that should be included, but Jefferson would be the one to actually pen the words that rang across the centuries. Through most of the war, Adams' work kept him hundreds of miles away from the battles. Primarily, he was responsible for securing loans from other countries with a traveling envoy. Doing so required numerous voyages across the Atlantic to England, the Netherlands, Spain, and France. One of his travel mates on some of these voyages was his old pal from the Continental Congress, Thomas Jefferson, and their partnership was as contentious as ever. In fact, when Jefferson first heard that Adams had been chosen for this job, he said that Adams was a good choice despite the man's personal vanity and his hatefulness towards all those he would encounter in Europe. Honesty may be expected even from poisonous weeds. Oh, boy. These guys really hated each other. (laughs) That's just it. I don't think they did. They were just two very different men who kept finding themselves shackled together by fate. I guess sometimes you just have to blow off some steam. (laughs) Adam's trips eventually racked up a land and sea total of 29,000 miles. The boy from the small town of Braintree was now a regular globetrotter. And much like his volunteer work representing those British soldiers after the Boston Massacre... Adams never once balked at being asked to do one more trip across the Atlantic. He always felt it was what he needed to do to ensure the greatest chances for the new country's success. Adams continued his journeys right up till the time the British finally surrendered to America in 1783. 
Adams would be there in Paris with the American delegation, including Benjamin Franklin and fellow founding father John Jay, to sign the Declaration of Peace with a representative of George III. The war was over, and America was its own. But Adams didn't get to put away his passport after the war. He was still a man of many missions across the Atlantic, seemingly always away from home gallivanting around Europe, securing loans and agreements on behalf of the fledgling United States. But any time things were brewing back home, Adams would venture back to America. And boy, were things brewing. The young nation's brand new constitution had been in the works by James Madison, and it was finally christened in 1787, establishing the presidency, the Congress, the Supreme Court, the entire American system. So Adams wrapped everything up in Europe and returned in 1788, determined to secure his place in the new national government he fought so hard to help create. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. And now, back to historical figures. John Adams knew in his bones George Washington couldn't escape being the first president. His military leadership during the war made him the supreme choice to be the face of the country to the world. So he set his sights just slightly lower on the vice presidency, a perfect example of Adams' lack of confidence meeting his considerable ambition. As for the election of 1788, he wasn't wrong. Washington was welcomed in by a unanimous electoral vote, and John, as a northerner, won his place in the second spot as vice president. The position was then, as it is now, one that has practically no power whatsoever. He would preside over the Senate and occasionally brandish his tie-breaking vote. Worse, he was disallowed from using his greatest gifts, those of eloquence and persuasion. That's not to say his time as vice president wasn't colorful. It started off with a protracted scrim amongst the entire chamber as to exactly what to call the president. What seemed like a small matter easily became a huge shouting match on the floor of the Senate. One committee even advocated calling the president, His Highness the President of the United States of America and Protector of the Rights of the Same. Hmm. 
Not ideal for the presidential stationery. <laughs> right. Luckily, it was whittled down to just President of the United States. And in most circumstances, a simple Mr. President would do. Along the way, Adams also helped steer the ship of state as the bloody French Revolution roiled, guided the conversation on exactly where the official capital of the country would be situated, and busied himself fending off a certain upstart treasury secretary by the name of Alexander Hamilton. Hmm. Hamilton was sort of a Federalist plus. He was a huge proponent of the development of a strong central government as a kind of focal point for governance of all 13 states. Adams was a Federalist, too, but of a different stripe. Centralized governance for practical reasons made sense to him, but he felt intuitively that an ever-growing central government was a danger to the Republic. But Hamilton's ideas weren't just the same old song and dance. He wanted the government to absorb the debt of each individual state, reasoning that the acquiring of a national debt would result in the government's greater responsibility, thus greater authority. Weirdly, it was one of the few times during this period that Adams and Jefferson actually agreed. As farmers, they simply didn't have trust in banks, and certainly not a huge centralized national bank. In the end, it was Hamilton's shrewd manipulation of ego and understanding of human nature that won him the day. He negotiated a deal that appealed to Jefferson as spokesman for the largest opposing state, Virginia. If Jefferson went along with Hamilton's proposals, the new national capital was situated on a tract of land in the south, on the Potomac River just to the east of Virginia. Hamilton got his bank, and Jefferson got proximity to the nation's permanent seat of power. But ultimately, it was a deal that created more tension. Like some great dividing force, these huge arguments eventually codified the two warring factions into bona fide political parties. Neither Adams nor Jefferson were given to siding with large groups, preferring to follow their own moral compass. Yet they found themselves on exact opposite ends of the current political spectrum. As if their relationship wasn't complicated enough. Mm -hmm. It gets worse. When Washington stepped down after two terms, both Adams and Jefferson campaigned to be his replacement. And in those early days, the second highest vote automatically became vice president. Adams won. Well, let me guess. Jefferson was runner-up? Mm-hmm. You got it. Talk about your team of rivals. But Adams was the top dog, and he carried with him all of his gathered experience and wisdom from decades in public life. Despite what his enemies would say, he'd racked up enough positive political capital over the years to be considered one of the most qualified candidates the office has ever known. Yet he was one of the least fit personally. Historian James David Barber, who rated presidents based on personality and character, put Adams in the category of active negative presidents because of his vague and discontinuous self-image. In a nutshell, once he was in office, all of his internal conflicts seemed to warp his good qualities into non-existence. His management style was constantly called into question. The press heavily criticized him for his kingliness. He was opinionated and always thought he was right. And he was prone to fits of anger. Mm, not exactly winning friends and influencing people. Mm, well, much of this is understandable to an extent. We know he was a good man, very often likable, and touted the highest of moral traits. 
But the problem was simple. He was not George Washington, and he knew it. Of all the founding fathers, Washington was the most robust, the most athletic, among the tallest, and with his military track record, he was an unbesmirchable paragon of heroism. The Superman of presidents. John Adams, on the other hand, was a man who rarely felt at home amongst those he thought were better than he was. For one thing, Washington never declared himself a member of a political party. Mm. Well, he didn't declare, but he definitely leaned Federalist. So many of the positions and policies of his administration were easy for Adams to string along. Adams' one term can best be defined as merely an attempt at continuing what George Washington started. Adams' one great shackle, one that he locked onto his own ankle willingly right up front, was his decision to keep Washington's cabinet intact. It was a group of men that, by and large, did not like Adams. Remember, John Adams was definitely a Federalist in political disposition, but his overriding personal disposition was to avoid any and all discord that could be brought about by the tensions of party warfare. Unfortunately, his party ambivalence placed him in the middle of two very vocal sides that rose in volume over two very distinct episodes in Adams' time in office. The first was the so-called XYZ affair. England and France had been at war during Washington's tenure, but he exercised a tortured diplomacy and essentially remained neutral. By the time of Adams, France was getting pushy, mostly due to a new and imposing threat from a general you might have heard of, Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, that guy. He started seizing American boats in the Atlantic, so Adams sent a peace delegation to France to settle the issue. The Americans arrived in France and met with three representatives of French Foreign Minister Talleyrand. These representatives told the delegation that all would be well, but that any smooth negotiations would require a douceur, a French word meaning sweetener. Mm, a bribe? Exactly. Talleyrand wanted $250,000 for himself, plus $10 million for France, as a retribution for Adams' unkind words towards them in a speech to Congress the previous May. Word of the request from these three men known in the American press simply as X, Y, and Z, got back to Congress, and the Hawks were immediately in war mode. The members of Adams' own Federalist Party, stoked by Hamilton's visions of potential military suppression of the Republicans in Congress, were about as gung-ho as you can imagine for growing the army and showing off American strength to the world. But the last thing Adams wanted was for the new nation to be in the crosshairs of both England and France. Adams was no warmonger. As Abigail put it herself, quote, He has no ambition for military glory. He cannot add by war to his peace, comfort, or happiness. It must accumulate upon him an additional load of care, toil, trouble, malice, hatred, and I dare say, revenge. Adams wasn't about to make things worse for himself by giving in to what he thought was glorified pettiness, so he sent a second delegation to negotiate a bribe-free peace. This, of course, inflamed the hawks even more. But the second delegation was successful. America and France would later sign the Treaty of Mortefontaine to end the confrontation, which came to be known as the Quasi-War with France. 
Through it all, Adams was vilified by the press for not showing strength through war, but history shows him to have been a model of temperament and judicious restraint. Two things came out of the French incident. One was Adams' greatest lasting achievement in office. The other was the most egregious stain on his entire life's work. The first was the establishment of the American Navy. Adams understood that if America was to protect its shores, it would have to have a navy. Also, his own feelings were that a standing army was a threat to peace at home, while a navy was necessary for defense against attack from the outside. But it was a different, quite opposite act that became an ignominious blemish upon his character. While the incidents were unfolding with France, the press had excoriated him. Adams' great character flaw was the inability to accept criticism. But America was then, as it is now, a nation of loud and vocal opinions. Many newspaper editors and politicians were angry at the president for his policies, especially those that had to do with France, and they let it be known. Adams, in a straight-up dictatorial move, decided that their dissent was a danger to the safety of the United States and signed into law the Alien and Sedition Acts. The Alien Act allowed the president to deport anyone that he felt was a danger, and the Sedition Act allowed him to jail anyone that spoke out against the president or certain members of the government in a way he felt was a threat to American safety. All of this, of course, fed into that certain characterization of Adams that he couldn't shake off, that he was overly aristocratic, royal, arrogant, and prideful. Thomas Jefferson, as president, would repeal the Sedition Act altogether while restricting the use of the Alien Act. But the fact that they were signed into law at all was not just a scar on Adams' presidency, but on the whole of American history. In 1800, Adams moved into the still incomplete White House in the newly christened capital city, now called Washington. He barely had time to measure the drapes. He mounted his campaign for re-election, bloodied politically, but not dead yet. But his troubles were insurmountable. By then, he'd alienated so many in Congress, including many in his own party, that he eventually lost in a bitter fight with, you guessed it, Mr. Frenemy Thomas Jefferson. Much to his bitter resentment, Adams became America's first one-term president, serving from 1797 to 1801. John Adams retired into private life with Abigail back in Massachusetts. From there, he watched the country he helped create stretch even deeper into the Western continent. Jefferson, as we said, was a man who championed small government. Yet it was Jefferson who oversaw the purchase of the Louisiana Territory from the French, an act that doubled the size of the country and greatly expanded the powers of the president. But all that was somebody else's problem now. John was already looking forward to retirement in the household that Abigail built. While he was away, and that was for several large chunks of their marriage, Abigail happily handled the finances for the family. It's not an exaggeration to say she was shrewd and just a tad opportunistic in her methods. She made the family money in three major ways. Because of the war, many household items and articles of clothing were constantly out of stock. So while he was in France, she had him send merchandise back to her that she could then resell. 
She fairly well cornered the market on all those goods, and once even saved up enough to buy the family a brand new chariot. Second, with John's money and using his name, she bought tracts of newly cleared Vermont land that, of course, appreciated with time. Third, and this is maybe the most opportunistic, during the Revolutionary War, soldiers were paid in what were called final settlement certificates, promissory notes from the federal government to pay them one day. Well, the soldiers got to eat, so many of these desperate men sold the certificates for pennies on the dollar for cash to buy food. Abigail bought a ton of them over the course of the war, made money on their interest, and also got the face value for them after the Constitution was ratified. Even more brazen in the eyes of society at the time, she started a secret account for herself. To accumulate money as a woman was to be in defiance of the law of the land. But after years of pressing John to change the laws regarding women's ownership of land and wealth, it continually fell on deaf ears. So she decided she'd let her own home be a refuge against such male intransigence. Remarkably, by the time of her death in 1818, she'd accumulated the modern equivalent of $100,000. Even the fact that she wrote up a will at all went against every standard of legality of the time. Even better, she left every penny of it to her daughters, daughters-in-law, female servants, essentially continuing to assert women's rights from beyond the grave. But we don't want to vilify John too much. It should be noted that after Abigail died and he found these letters and documents of hers, he honored them to the letter of her wishes. As for his old pal Thomas Jefferson, the two struck up a post-presidential detente. Both were retired and back on their farms with their families, far from the rancor of politics. They seemed wise and wizened enough by this point to put aside old differences and become friends again through correspondence. This lasted until they died, when John was 91 years old. It's one of those strange historical accidents that much later, after years of constant written conversation, the two men both died on the same day. But even more poignant is that that day was July 4th, 1826. Exactly 50 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Well, with the very Adams-like caveat that the Congress actually voted unanimously for independence two days earlier, on July 2nd, 1776. And that it then took months for all those signers to get their hands on it. Mm -hmm. Well, imagine an office lunch order going around, but all your co-workers lived in different states. But the commonly celebrated day of July 4th applied to both of their deaths still carries a very real historical poignancy. Both men gave so much of their adult lives to secure a lasting freedom from the tyranny of British rule. John Adams, especially, with his particular mix of hesitation, confidence, and prickly self-analysis, seems in so many ways to represent the tumbling, grizzled, chin-stroking character of America itself. He came from humble beginnings, fought through constant self-doubt, embraced a confident understanding of liberty, and finally helped lead a revolution of the people against brazen oppression. In the end, John Adams' entire life could be said to represent the essential ideals of the Founding Fathers. And to this day, that short, outspoken man from Braintree has come to personify freedom itself. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. A new episode comes out every Wednesday, so don't forget to subscribe to Historical Figures on Apple Podcasts. Tune in, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network, or through our website, Parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. As always, we thank you for listening. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Robert Hornack and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. Our amazing voice actor is Steve Pinto.